Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, folks. This is Mike Adams again for Nothing But The Truth. Uh, it's uh, January 13th, 2015. This is the second part of Daniel 11, starting at verse 28. And uh, we're going to read again the, the verses, go verse by verse in commentary and look at the historical context of this chapter, and I know um, for most it's going to be tedious and boring, so that's the reason why I didn't even bother this time around to even wait till the appointed time and just get into it, get over it with it. Okay, uh, Daniel eleven twenty-eight. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. While Antiochus IV was engaged in Egypt, a false rumor arose in Judea that he had been killed. This prompted deposed high priest Jason to raise an army of 1,000 men and attack Jerusalem. His army captured the city and forced the high priest and Menelaus to take refuge in uh, Acre, the fortress of or the fortress in Jerusalem. When the news of the fighting in Jerusalem reached Antiochus IV, he took it to mean that Judea was in revolt against him. Antiochus IV left Egypt. On his way home, he and his army marched against Jerusalem. He commanded his soldiers to kill everyone they encountered, men, women, and children. Within a space of three days, his forces had killed somewhat, somewhere between forty and 80,000 people. A similar number were captured and sold into slavery. <clears throat> Not satisfied with the a slaughter, Antiochus IV entered the temple and guided by Menelaus took the holy vessels, including the golden altar, the menorah, the table for the showbread, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crown, and the golden decoration on the the front of the temple. He took all the silver and gold, as well as the hidden treasures which he found. After appointing the uh, Phrygian Phrygian Philip as governor of Jerusalem, Antiochus IV then returned to Antioch. 
Did you know that? Daniel 11:29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come towards the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. Meanwhile, in Egypt's brother, in Egypt, brothers Ptolemy the sixth and Ptolemy the seventh reconciled and agreed to share power. This annulled Antiochus the alliance with Ptolemy the sixth and caused his loss of control over the Ptolemaic kingdom. Because of this. In 168 B.C., Antiochus IV once again sought to go to war against Egypt. However, this time he would not have the same success as he achieved previously. Daniel 11, verse 30. For the ships of the of Chittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and returned and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. <clears throat> because they knew that they had, they could not defeat Antiochus IV alone, the Ptolemy brothers appealed to Rome for help. In order to check the um, threat of Greek expansions, the Romans agreed to provide assistance. The ships from Kittim. It refers to the ships which brought the Roman legions <clears throat> to Egypt to fulfill to in fulfillment of the defense pact. As Antiochus IV and his armies marched towards Alexandria, they were met by three Roman senators led by Gaius uh, Popilius Alanus of Eleusis, a suburb of Alexandria. Their Roman ambassadors Papilius delivered to Antiochus IV the Senate's demand that he withdrew from Egypt. When the king requested time for consultation, uh, Papilius drew a circle around Antiochus IV with a stick he was carrying and told him not to leave the circle until he gave his response. The king of the north was astonished at this display of Roman arrogance. But after a brief time, he said he would do all that the Romans demanded. On his return to Syria, Antiochus IV tried to ease the sting of the humiliation he had suffered at the hands of the Romans by taking out his frustrations on the Jews in Judea. His armies encircled Jerusalem and then attacked. All those Jews who resisted were executed. However, the pro-Hellenistic Jews who allied themselves with Antiochus IV were left unharmed. 
Daniel 11:31. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Antiochus the fourth armed Okay, the uh, Antiochus the fourth army desecrated the temple and stopped the daily sacrifices. On the fifteenth of uh, Kislev in December of one sixty eight BC, Syrians built a pagan altar over the altar of burnt offering in the temple and placed an image of Zeus Olympias upon it. Ten days later, on the 25th of Kislev, swine flesh was offered on the altar to Zeus. Daniel 11.32 And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. <clears throat> After venting his anger upon the Jews and desecrating the temple, Antiochus IV decreed that his entire kingdom should become one people, each giving up his own customs. The other peoples under his rule accepted Antiochus IV's command. Because of his flattering approach, many of the people of Israel also forsook the law and adopted his religion. Antiochus, Antiochus, Antiochus IV commanded a change in all the ordinances of God. No sacrifices were to be offered in the sanctuary. The Sabbaths and feasts were to be profaned, and that and that the Jews were not to circumcise their sons upon pain of death, they were commanded to profane the true religion so that eventually the law could be forgotten. Antiochus IV appointed specters to watch the Jews and, co and commanded the cities of Judea, Judah to offer pagan sacrifices. Yet many in Israel stood firm and rejected the I'll see the innovations of the king of the north and how history keeps on repeating itself okay uh, Daniel 11:33 and they that understand among the people shall instruct many yet they shall fall by the sword by flame by captivity, by spoil, many days. Whenever Antiochus the Fourth men found copies of the Torah, they tore them to pieces and burned them. Whoever was found in possession of the Torah was put to death. According to Antiochus the Fourth's decree, women who had their children circumcised were put to death, along with their entire families. And those who had been circumcised and those who had circumcised them. Still many in Israel chose to die rather than to break the Holy Covenant. 
fine example for us today who are Christians, true Bible-believing Christians, and who will bow down to Rome. Okay, 11, verse 34 of Daniel. Now when they shall fall, they shall be opened with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. As the historical book of First Maccabees shows, the decrees of Antiochus IV eventually led to a rebellion started by the priest uh, Mattathias and his five sons, including Judas Maccabee. He and his family had fled from Jerusalem to Modin, Modin, I think it's Modin, uh, when the Seleucid forces took the city. There, Mattathias killed a Jew who was sacrificing according to Antiochus IV's command, as well as the king's officer who was forcing them to, to sacrifice. From this first act of rebellion, a guerrilla war against the forces of Antiochus IV began. After the death of his father, Mattathias, in 167 BC, Judas Maccabee defeated the large army of Antiochus IV, General Apollonius. This victory helped Judas to gather a sizable force. However, only a minority of the soldiers were actually faithful men. Next, uh, Siron, the commander of the Syrian army, came against the forces of Judas. Or Judas. His army was also defeated by Judas, and his fame spread all the way to Antioch. King Antiochus, Antiochus IV, so King Antioch, Antioch, I can't say his name now. Okay, King Antiochus IV was greatly angered by the exploits of Judas and his men, and he gathered his army. He opened a royal treasury and gave his soldiers a year's wages, ordering them to be ready for whatever action needed to be taken. This approach quickly okay, this approach quickly emptied the royal treasury of funds and made it necessary for Antiochus IV to seek additional tributes and spoils from his lands. In 166 BC, he decided to go to Persia to collect or seize by force the needed money. Antiochus IV left his general Lysias in charge of his son and half of his army with instructions to attack and destroy Jerusalem and Judea. Lysias, Lysias sent an army of 40,000 infantry, 7,000 cavalry, and marched into Judea. He met the forces of Judas Maccabee to attack and destroy Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, Lysias sent an army of 40,000... Uh, okay. He met the forces of Judas Maccabee, 3,000 poorly equipped men near... Emmaus, 
However, despite being vastly outnumbered, Judas' army routed the Syrians, killing 3,000 and putting the rest to flight. And 165 B.C., Lysias again sent the Syrian army, now numbering 60,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, against the Jewish forces, which had risen to 10,000. This time, 5,000 Syrians were killed, and Lysias fled back to Antioch. Because of his great victory, Judas and his men were able to recapture the temple. Did you know that? Uh, the pious Jews cleansed and renewed it on the uh, Kislev 25th, uh, 165 B.C., three years to the day after the first abominable sacrifice had been offered. The new altar was rededicated and holy sacrifices offered. The Jews celebrated their rededication of the temple for eight days in memory of the Jewish victory and rededication of the temple. Judas Maccabee decreed that the feast of dedication called uh, Chanuka, and it's Chanuka, that's what it's pronounced, Chanuka, and that's C-H-A-N-U-K-A-H in Hebrew, was to be observed every year thereafter for eight days beginning on Kislev, 25. And 164 BC, Antiochus IV army was defeated at Elimius, Persia, when he attempted to plunder the city of its gold and silver. Soon thereafter, a messenger came from Antioch to notify him of the defeat of his army in Judas, by Judas and the Jews. Terribly shaken by these events, he fell sick and became bedridden. Antiochus IV died shortly thereafter. Daniel 11.35 And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them, and to purge them, and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. When the Gentile nations around Judea heard of their victory over the Seleucids, they became very angry. They began to kill those Jews who lived among them. Judas Maccabee and his brother Simon went out to fight against those Gentiles who sought to kill the Jews and defeated them. After the death of Judas Maccabee in a battle in 161 B.C., persecution continued upon the Jews, as history records, and many wicked Jews who had opposed Judas and his goals took opportunity after his death to persecute and kill righteous Jews. Imagine that. That's probably what we're going to go through. For history repeats itself. Beginning with Matthias' leadership of the rebellion against Antiochus IV, the rule of Hasmoneans, named after Matthias' grandfather, Asmoneus, <laughs> lasted 
from 168 until 37 B.C. The words until the time of the end refer to the end of the second period of the Jewish sovereignty. The appointed time refers to the 70 weeks of the years that Gabriel had earlier told Daniel about in 9, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, which led to the appearance of the Messiah. Daniel 11:36, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. In this verse, the king being spoken of changes. Starting in the verse 21, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was the referred king. Verse 32 through 35 prophecy, his defeat by the Maccabees and encompasses the subsequent fall of their dynasty. But the context shows the remaining verses in this chapter cannot apply to Antiochus IV. Most Christian scholars try to insert a huge chronological gap in prophecy here, making the rest of it apply not to the antitype Antiochus IV, but to the end-time type, the Antichrist. But staying in time sequence context earlier alluded to by Gabriel in Daniel 11, 1, what should we expect to see next in the prophecy? Was there a king who ruled Israel after the end of the Hasmonean era? What appears to have caused scholars to stray away from the correct understanding at this point of prophecy is that they were unable to find a successor to Antiochus IV who matched the description of the king. But two points must be kept in mind in order to properly understand this prophecy. The subject is the Seleucid or uh, Ptolemaic dynasties only, as these kingdoms affect Daniel's people. Therefore, the expression, the king, without any other description, could certainly mean one who was king over Israel. Secondly, the immediately preceding verses of Daniel 11, 32-35 refer to the Jews and their situation during and after of a certainly mean one who was king over Israel. Second, uh, that, just, that didn't make any sense. I just skipped there. Now, secondly, immediately preceding the verse, Daniel 11, 32-35 refers refer to the Jews and their situation during and after the Maccabean, the Maccabean revolt. Based on the history of this period, we should look for the fulfillment of this verse by a king other than Antiochus IV or the Hasmonean rulers. Uh-huh. 
both secular history and New Testament record of Acts of the king who appeared on the scene in Israel at the end of the Hasmonean period. As we shall see, this king fulfilled every prophetic description given in verse 36 through 39. That king was Herod the Great. In verse 36, the one spoken of is not identified as either the king of the north or the king of the south, but simply as the king. Herod was seated as king on the throne of Israel when Messiah Yeshua was born. He is called the king in the Gospels. In Matthew 2, 1, uh, Matthew verses 1, verses 3, and verses 9, and Luke 1, verses 5. He, like Antiochus IV before him, was an antitype of the coming Antichrist. Excuse me, of the coming Antichrist. As his actions revealed, let's look at the specific points in prophecy and see how Herod fulfilled them. And, of course, we know who the Antichrist is today and who has been for 1,700 years. That would be the papacy. Now, would that? The king shall do according to oh okay the king shall do according to his own will. The first thing said of this king is that he would do according to his own will. While most take this to mean that the king would do as he pleased, it is instructive to see how this phrase is used elsewhere in the prophecy. In Daniel 11.3, we see that it is said that Alexander the Great, that he would do according to his will. Similar, similar words are used of Antiochus the Great in Daniel 11.16. This means more than simply a strong-willed ruler who did things his own way. Both of these rulers, Alexander and Antiochus III, were exceptionally successful in achieving their goals. Success in achieving and maintaining power also defined Herod the Great. History shows that Herod was an, an, Edomine, an Edomites, and the Edomites were forcefully converted to Judaism under the Hasmonean ruler John, John Hyrcanus. That's H-Y-R-C-A-N-U-S, about 130 B.C. His father, uh, Antipater II, a friend and advisor of, of Hasmonean ruler, uh, Hyrcanus II, was made... Broke, uh, <laughs> procurator, procurator of Judah by Julius Caesar in that position. Antipater II made Herod the governor of Galilee at the age of 25 in 47 B.C. Herod integrated himself with Rome following the assassination of Julius Caesar and eventually married Mary as the Marian Annie. That's... And the, I guess it's Mary Anne. Anyways, it's M A R 
A M N E, the granddaughter of Hyrcanus the second, even though he was already married with a even though he was already married with a young son. Okay, due to the due to a recommendation by Hyrcanus the second, as well as the bride paid to Rome. Roman ruler Marcus Anthony, Herod was appointed as uh, tetrarch over Judah in 41 BC. Shortly thereafter, the Parthians overran Judea in 40 BC, installed uh, Antigonus, Agonus, Antigonus, the Hasmonean brother of Hyrcanus II, as king, Herod fled and eventually came to Rome, where he was appointed king of Judah by Gaius Octavius, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Mark Antony, excuse me. He left Rome with an army and by 37 BC had captured Judea and deposed. Antigonus. He bribed Antony to have Antigonus killed, lest his claims to Judean throne be found to be more legitimate than Herod's own. All in all, Herod's rise to power showed that he was very successful at doing according to his own will. Viewing the expression in the sense of doing as he pleased, history shows that Herod was ruthless, cruel, and doing his own will. He did not hesitate to murder those he considered to be threats to his rule, including Heraclius II and almost the entire Hasmonean line. Even those closest to him, his own family, were not safe. Herod had his beloved wife, Mariani, executed on a trumped-up charge of adultery, as well as three of his own sons because he suspected them of conspiring to take his throne. These and other deeds of evil willfulness characterized his entire reign. He shall exult and magnify himself above every god. The text also states that the king shall exult and magnify himself above every god. The word God here is the Hebrew El, the theological word word book of the Old Testament says that the primary meaning of this root as used in scripture are God with a small g, pagan or false gods. God with a big G, the true God of Israel, and less frequently the mighty, referring to men or angels. It is clear that Herod exalted and magnified himself above every mighty one in Israel. Whether priests or rulers, he appointed whomever he chose to the sacred office of high priest. However, because he owed 
true allegiance only to himself and his lust for absolute power, Herod truthfully could be said to have exalted and magnified himself above all other gods, including the God of Israel, whose will he attempted to thwart by destroying the promised Messiah. Okay, then the next part. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. The Hebrew word uh, niflaot, and that's N-I-P-H-L-A-O-T, rendered blasphemies, is some, in some translation, actually means marvelous. If used in a positive sense or astonishing, in a negative sense, this charge against Herod primarily refers to his command to slaughter the male babies of Bethlehem. This was done by the express purpose of destroying the coming Messiah in Matthew 2, chapter 2, verse 4. The one God had promised to send to be king over his people in the people Israel. Herod chose to act directly against God's will in a way to ensure that his throne would not be taken over by the rightful heir, Messiah, the son of David. We shall look at this action more later. Daniel 11.37 Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Even though Herod was an idiomy, an idiomy, how do you spell it? Idiom, idiom, that's I-D-U-M-E-A-N. And I'm going to say idiomene, a descendant of Esau. His family had converted to Judaism in the 2nd century B.C. Therefore, Herod was generally regarded as a Jew. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, when addressing the Jewish people, Herod customarily used the expression our fathers to emphasize his genealogical ties to the patriarchs. Yet Herod promoted Greek and Roman gods and built the port city of Caesarea. Caesarea. I think it's Caesarea, but I might not be pronouncing that right. My apologies. Named after the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, which became a symbol in Jewish eyes for everything pagan. In uh, Caesarea, maybe that's what it is, Caesarea. That's probably what it is. The port city of Caesarea. My apologies. In Caesarea, Herod built a huge temple dedicated to worship of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor and God. Additionally, he built temples dedicated to Augustus in um, Sebasti, Sebasti, the rebuilt city of Samaria, and Peneas, this city long associated with the worship of the pagan god Pan. He also supported the restoration of the temple of Pythian Pythian, Apollo, 
on the Greek island of Rhodes. Hey, I've heard that name before. Uh, Participated, excuse me, in the building of the Temple of Baal, uh, Shamim, in Syah, and contributed to temples in Tyre and Sidon. Herod extensively remodeled the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, but then placed a huge golden Roman eagle in the main entrance, which religious Jews saw as a blasphemous idol. A group of Torah students destroyed this emblem of idolatry, earning themselves the fate of being burned alive by Herod. Herod's regard was for the benefits that he could achieve by supporting various gods. His religion was one of expedience, not conviction. He exalted himself above all the gods, the desire of women. <clears throat> the phrase, the desire of women, has been variously understood. Some scholars have opinioned that speaking of the end-time Antichrist, this indicates that he will have no desire for women. This is far from the intended meaning of this phrase. However, in Haggai's In Haggai uh, chapter 2, 7, the Messiah is called the desire of all nations. The exact same Hebrew word, chemdet, chemdat, and that's, or chemdat, and that's C-H-E-M-D-A-T, is used in that verse and Daniel eleven thirty seven. It was the hope that every religious Jewish woman that she might be the mother of the prophesied Messiah. Therefore, it was primarily the Messiah who was the desire of the Jewish women. Additionally, children in general are the desire of women. The fact that Herod attempted to murder the infant Messiah by destroying numerous babies shows that he had no regard for the maternal nature of women. Each one of the slain infants was the desire of his own mother. Herod exalted himself above all by valuing holding unto his power and position above everyone and everything else, including the God of Israel. He's pretty rational and to me. And I mean not his behavior, but the explanation for the desire of women. <clears throat> okay, Daniel 11.38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. I can see why a lot of people would think that this would be the papacy today, or Rome, the Vatican City, but you got to remember when this was written. And, you know, Rome is nothing more than an extension of the pagan religions of 
that area in that time anyway. So going all the way back, what uh, the Babylonian Empire, Egypt, and etc. So just an amalgamation of all these different religions. So it would be no surprise that a lot of these sayings. I can see why a lot of people would. I think he was actually talking about Rome today. But we have to always remember the historical context. And unfortunately, it takes a adult like me to read this stuff to you, in which most of you will never listen to, to come to the truth. And it's always been that way, so what can you do? Anyways, uh, yeah. So, this is the commentary on 1138. Herod's actions in securing and holding on to power provides an impressive fulfillment of this verse. The phrase, God of forces and fortresses, is uncommon enough that it provides us a ready means of identification. The Roman emperors proclaimed themselves to be gods. And it was by their military forces and fortresses that they enlarged and sustained their power and their empire. Herod was quick to honor the warring Roman rulers with tribute and building projects. He rebuilt many fortresses in the land and temples in surrounding Gentile areas, including three temples dedicated to Caesar Augustus. He rebuilt the ancient Phoenician coastal fort called Astratos Tower and renamed it uh, Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus. He rebuilt Samaria. He renamed the Sebasta, the Sebasti, the Sebast, or Sebastos was a Greek word for reverend, equivalent to the Latin word. Augustus, Augustus, he built many other fortified cities and named them in honor of Caesar. Herod also introduced Greek-style games in honor of Caesar. He often sent delegations to Rome to deliver valuable gifts and money to show his respect to Caesar. Daniel 11.39 And thus... <clears throat> And thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Verse 39 continues the subject from the previous verse, using the support and backing of the Roman emperor. Herod was able to overcome all of his foes. In the process, he promoted the glory of the Romans in Judea to his own benefit. Herod gave land and authority to those who supported him in order to secure their allegiance. When viewed properly, we can see that very items foretold of the king in verses 36 to 39 was fulfilled in the reign of Herod. Verse 1140. Okay. At that time, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push 
at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overthrow, overflow and pass over. Remember, these prophecies are not primarily concerned with Syria, Egypt, Okay, are not primarily concerned with Syria and Egypt, Rome, or any other foreign power, but with the fate of Daniel's people, the Jews. Verses 40-43 are uh, parathetical inserts describing uh, inserts describing the, the last major battle over the land of Israel before the Messiah appeared. For the final time in this prophecy, we see in the king of the south and the king of the north engaged one another in battle. Here the king of the south is Mark Antony and his ally Cleopatra, the last monarch to occupy the Egyptian throne. The king of the north is Octavius, who as the official representative of Rome was ruler of the former Syrian Empire of the Seleucids. Antony and Octavius made a pact with a third party, Marcus uh, Aemilius Lepidus, to rule Rome after the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. In civil war, that followed Caesar's death, they defeated the, assassin, they, the assassin's forces in 42 B.C. The next year, Antony fell in love with the Egyptian queen Cleopatra. After Antony suffered a military defeat against the Parthians in 36 B.C., he and Octavius had a falling out. Worsening the situation was the fact that in 32 B.C., Antony divorced his Roman wife, Octavia, the sister of Octavius, and ceded many of the eastern Roman territories to Cleopatra and their children. Finally, in 31 B.C., a new civil war broke out between the Roman Senate supported Octavius and Antony and Cleopatra. The Roman historian Plutarch wrote that the first move in the war was made by Antony at the insistence of Cleopatra. Thus we see that the king of the south indeed first attacked the king of the north. The Romans then quickly pronounced Antony an outlaw and declared war on Cleopatra. In this war, Herod supported Antony and sent supplies to his forces. He wished to join Antony for a final showdown with Octavius, but fortunately Antony dispatched him and his troops to fight the Nabataean king uh, Malichus I. Amazingly, the prophecy was accurately fulfilled in regard to the composition of the forces engaged in the war. Despite the fact that each side had assembled large infantry forces, Plutarch records 
that these infantries were not engaged at all in the short war. Although the generals advised Antony to use his overwhelming infantry advantage to defeat Octavius, Antony decided to persecute the war primarily with ships in order to satisfy the request of Cleopatra. Thus, the conflict was decided by chariots, horsemen, and in a major naval battle, approximately 630 ships. After the navy of Antony and Cleopatra was routed off the <laughs> routed off the promontory of uh, Actium in Greece in September 1st, 2000. Excuse me, September the 2nd, <laughs> uh, 31 BC. The infantry deserted and never saw battle. Seeing that Antony was all but defeated, Herod helped uh, Quintus uh, uh, Didius, the Roman governor of Syria, to prevent a... Uh, excuse me. Herod helped Quintus Didius, the Roman governor of Syria, prevent a troop of Antony's gladiators from reaching Egypt to the aid of Antony. Herod then undertook a dangerous sea voyage in the winter of 30 BC to meet Octavius on the Greek island of Rhodes. Herod came to him humbly and stated that he would be a loyal he would be as loyal to Octavius as he had previously been to Antony. Octavius accepted Herod's plea pledge and promised him continual rule over Judea. Daniel eleven forty one. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. The course Octavius took after his victory over Antony and Cleopatra accurately follows the prophecy. He passed through Syria, Judea, the glorious land in Egypt in his pursuit of the pair. However, the land of Edom, Moab, and Ammon were not invaded during this excursion. A later expedition into these areas, about 25 B.C., under the command of Aelius Gallus, along with 500 troops from Herod, was not sufficient and no further efforts were made against them. Daniel 11:42. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the lands of Egypt shall not escape. Antony's plans to regroup their forces in Alexandria failed, since most of his soldiers had deserted to join Octavius based on a false report that Cleopatra had killed herself, Antony committed suicide with his own sword. Cleopatra, Cleopatra actually lived for some weeks after Antony's death and met Octavius on at least one occasion to negotiate the best possible situation for her children. Realizing that Octavius was planning to public, publicly exhibit her as a captive, and her 
in his victory parade in Rome, she too committed suicide, reportedly by allowing a venomous asp to bite her. Okay. Daniel 11.43 But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and of uh, Libyans and of Ethiopians shall be at his steps. The prophecy refers specifically to the vast treasures of Egypt. Therefore, it fulfill, its fulfillment must be looked for in the days of Egypt's power and wealth. It cannot have been fulfilled in the database of poverty-stricken, excuse me, could not be fulfilled in the debased and the poverty-stricken poverty Egypt of later centuries. In the days of Antony and Cleopatra, the treasures of Egypt were immense, of immense value, having been accumulated over the years of the Ptolemaic ruler, rule. Octavius captured the accumulated riches of Egypt with his victory over Antony and Cleopatra and celebrated his triumph in Rome in 29 B.C., he became the first Roman emperor entitled Caesar Augustus. Interest rates in Rome in the Roman Empire fell greatly due to the influx of plunder from Egypt. Octavius returned in victory to Rome. Octavius general uh, Cornelius Belbus later took Libya and Ethiopia for Rome. Why are the parenthetical events of verse 40 to 43 singled out because they illustrate how Rome's domination over Judea was fulfilled, fully established and show the end of the separation, separate history of the kingdom of the south. It is also sets the stage for the political conditions that would exist at the time the prophesied Messiah was to arise according to the 70th week prophecy given to Daniel earlier. Daniel 11:44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. Having updated the story flow from verse 40 to 43 to show the Roman dominance of Judea and the end of the king of the south, the prophecy now reverts back to its earlier subject. King Herod the king. What news came from the east to trouble Herod? Clearly it was the arrival of the Magi heralding the birth of the one who had been born the king of the Jews. Matthew 2.2. 2. As the next verse in Matthew's Gospel states, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Matthew 2.3. I'm sorry. I mean, I brought this up to some friends later that, earlier last week, and I'm thoroughly convinced at this point that this is what this verse is about. And they can say whatever they want, and they can feel and have belief whatever they want, but... Um, it makes a, a lot of sense to me. It's very logical to me. So, Nothing could trouble Herod more than the report of a 
claim it to his throne. After the Magi failed to return with the, a report of location of the newborn king, Herod became extremely angry and commanded that all the male uh, Christians who were in Beth, uh, Bethlehem and, and in all its districts from two years old and under be slain according to the time frame which he had been determined for, from the wise men. In Matthew 2.16. Also, in the last years of Herod's life, the oldest son, Antipater, conspired to take over his throne. Antipater was, a, was in Rome, which at this time had become the seat of what is indefinitely called the North in this prophecy. He, he sent letters to his father giving information that two of his other sons, of two of his other sons, whom Herod meant to make his successors, had denigrated their father to Caesar. This tidings out of the north troubled Herod to the extent that he had the two sons killed. Later, Antipater himself was executed by his, for his conspiracy and intrigue. Herod's great fury was not confined to the infants of Bethlehem or to the members of his own family. It was also at nearly the same time that he burned alive those who had pulled down his golden image of the Roman eagle from the gate of the temple. Did you know that? Realizing that his death was near and that he and his family were generally hated by Jews, Herod commanded that all the chief men of the Jewish nation be summoned to him in Jericho. Out of fear of not obeying the royal decree, they came. Herod, in a uh, seething rage, ordered them all to be shut up in the Hippodrome there, he placed his sister uh, Salome and, uh, and her husband Alexis in charge of them, ordering that they were all to be killed when he died. He reasoned that only due to the death of so many noble Jewish men would his own death be mourned. Sanity prevailed, however, and his order was not carried out. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, the final verse of 1145, which is uh, chapter 11, verse, and it is verse 45. Yeah. And he shall uh, plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Herod had many royal palaces throughout Judea, including two in Jerusalem. But as his illness worsened in March of 4 BC, he retired to his winter place palace in Jericho, less than 10, 10 miles northwest of the Dead Sea, about 45 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. 
and less than 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem. The final part of the prophecy shows that in his last days, the king would seek deliverance from the threats of his life, but would not receive it. This was literally fulfilled at the end of Herod's life, as the Jewish historian Josephus vividly documented. After the years of suffering from a painful disease, probably syphilis, Herod finally became so despondent that he attempted to take his own life with a paring knife. He was stopped from this act by his cousin, Achiab. Immediately after his suicide attempt, Herod ordered the execution of this son, of his son, Antipater. Just five days later, he finally succumbed to his illness. Herod, the king for 70 years, was, excuse me, the king, (laughs) Herod the king was 70 years old at the time of his death. Okay, I mean, I guess they want to go to Daniel 12.1. I guess to, let's, let's, let's read it. What the heck? Okay, Daniel 12.1. And at the time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time at the uh, uh, even at the same time, at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And chapter 1 starts with the Hebrew phrase, Yuvat, Yuvat, that's U-V-A-E-T, which is translated at that time. When used in prophetic writings, this phrase always denotes the time of the appearance of the Messiah to save Israel. That would be Jeremiah 33, verse 15, Jeremiah 50, verse 4 and 20, Joel 3, 1, etc. At the beginning of this chapter, we finally see the time gap most seek to insert at Daniel 11:36. The context of the first verses of chapter 12 shows the prophecy has now jumped forward to the time of the ultimate salvation of Daniel's people, which includes the resurrection from the dead. Okay. Don't know about that one, but why not? Conclusion. The expense, uh, expansive prophecy recorded by in Daniel 11 shows the political maneuverings of the powers which fought over and ruled Judea and the Jews throughout the period of the 70-week prophecy earlier given in Daniel 9, verses 24-27. These powers included the northern uh, Seleucid kingdom of Syria, the southern Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, the Roman Empire, and Roman vessels in Judea, Herod the Great, like many prophecies, 
This one is likely dual in some ways. Events that have occurred in ancient times could be replicated at the time of the end. Obviously, Antiochus IV and Herod the Great are antitypes of the coming Antichrist, which, uh, or the papacy, that's what I would say. But to assign much of this prophecy to a yet further time is to miss the fact that the prophecy conclusively shows God is in control and world of and world events happen according to his plan and purpose. And this is written by Brian T. Huey, December 30th, 2005, and revised in 2012, January 2nd, 2012. It's, called, it's on here a little and there a little dot net. And it's a commentary and reading of Daniel chapter 11. Uh, like I said, I, don't I do not necessarily agree with everything that's on this website, but I find that this is the most logical explanation I've heard yet for Daniel 11. And of course, everyone has a right to disagree with me, and no one has a you know, uh, no one has to accept what I have to say here or share. In most cases, you, people won't download it or listen to it anyway. So, but you know. Um, I feel very strongly that's what it is, and I'm glad that I've read this. I'm glad to share this with anybody who would be willing to listen to this. And it gives me great defense now, intellectual, along. Uh, well, at least the intellectual defense, when I hear folks, in people that I even admire and like, like uh, a Walter Keith, who tries to make it out to something other than it is. And you know what? Maybe there is a dualistic aspect to the whole thing. As we know, history repeats itself over and over again. And it magnifies in its horrors. And there's no reason to think that the Antichrist system coming out of Rome it's simply an amalgamation of all the Antichrist systems from the Old Testament would not follow suit. You know, it's it's habitual. It's a behavioral thing. It's a spiritual thing. They do follow the uh, the dragon. The dragon gives them the power. So, is there any surprise that this is what they would do? So anyways, I might be the only person in the world right now actually reading this. I've come to this conclusion, but I am so happy I came to this conclusion that I finally learned a true history of this particular chapter because I've had people in my life who have abused verses out of this chapter. <clears throat> and... Um, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to put our own words in these verses. We're supposed to teach truth to the best of our ability and our understanding. We're supposed to accept the fact and try to study the historical context of this book. 
I believe that it actually brings this book alive and, and makes it legitimate. The prophecies in Daniel all lead to the Messiah and Jesus Christ knew who he was. And so, if we're playing around with these verse, these, these chapters and these verses in the Old Testament and trying to make it out to be that they're talking about us, well, we shouldn't be doing that. We need to be intellectually honest. And people aren't going to take us seriously if we don't take this seriously. So with that, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Should be an interesting show tomorrow. We've got Jorg from Jungler 66 on. And we're going to do more about the characteristics of the Antichrist, which we know is the papacy in Rome and is not Obama. Okay. God bless everybody. Take care. Never. uh Have a great day, huh? Remember the Lord, right? Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.